Okay. This is an interview with Iron Jaw guitarist Rick Perry on Saturday, October 24th, 2020, by Nick Perkel. Now, Rick, can you tell me about getting your first guitar? Yeah, um, Nick, my first guitar, uh, actually, my mother got that for me for uh, a birthday present whenever I was 16 years old. She uh, purchased a cheap copy of a Fender Stratocaster and a little PV amp. I was uh, I was big time into Kiss and Ted Nugent and things like that, but I wasn't able to play the instrument myself, but I wanted to. Uh, I definitely was fascinated by rock and roll and um, she bought me a uh, bought me an electric guitar for I, I think it was my 16th birthday. Did you ever take any private music lessons? You know, she uh, paid for me to take music lessons. Uh, I think I took guitar lessons, just just a couple, maybe two or three lessons. Not, I didn't really think I got that much out of it because they were teaching me regular uh chords and stuff and just and i and i wanted to play rock and roll and uh and it seemed like the the music that they were teaching me was just too conservative and too laid back it wasn't what i wanted so uh i i started uh just pretty much being self-taught playing off learning off records and things like that please give me an introduction on yourself as a musician well, I, I've been playing guitar, um, like just like I said, since I was 16 years old. I uh, was got my the first band I was in. I suppose was whenever I was about 18 or 19, which was a band from here in Dallas called Warlock. It was one of the first uh, heavy metal bands in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Uh, not the first, but one of the first for sure. It was we're definitely talking the beginning of the uh, DFW metal scene, and we played back in those days. It was a situation where the bands would play three or four nights in a row at the club, and we would play three or four sets each night, and they were all copy songs. We could only play songs by you know, Kiss and AC/DC and Black Sabbath and things like that, and um, occasionally we would throw a few of our original songs into the mix, but mostly it was copy tunes because that's what the clubs wanted you to play. Warlock uh, had enough of original songs where we recorded a couple demos, but we never really went any further than that. We were still really just young and learning how to play. After uh, Warlock broke up, and this was probably about 1985 or 86, uh, the bass player of Warlock, his name was Eric Roy, he and I left, and we formed Gamicide. Um, we formed Gamicide with uh, Barnum Ponville on vocals and uh, Jamie Milford on drums, and later on Scott Shelby joined us as a second guitar player, and we were one of the uh, one of the primary thrash bands in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth scene back there in the, uh, in the 80s. Um, we put out an album called Victims of Science, in 1989, which was released on Wild Rags Records, we uh, we followed that up with another demo, but we we didn't uh, put out a second Gamicide album. We actually uh, broke up around '92, and after that, I um, formed an industrial band. Uh, I was interested in the uh, 
music by uh, bands like Skinny Puppy and Ministry and things like that at the time. We're talking early 90s. And um, I was in a band called uh, Puncture uh, from the 90s, really to about the end of the two, uh, to 2000, I suppose it was. And we put out two CDs. Uh, the first was a self-titled CD that came out in 94 on Century Media Records. And the second one was called Immune, which came out on a label called MIA Records in 96. And we did a, uh, a U.S. tour with Guar and Electric Hellfire Club and uh, um, played all over the U.S. It was, it was a real good, successful tour for us. But uh, around the year 2000, Puncture kind of had ran its course. And, and I uh, pretty much retired from the music scene for, uh, for about four or five years. And then in 2005, we reformed Gamicide. Uh, we did a short Texas tour. We re-released Victims of Science. And um, we were going to try to make a new Gamicide album, but it was, too, it was too difficult because two of the members lived in other states. Our singer lived in Louisiana. Our drummer lived in Colorado. So instead, what uh, Scott and I did, uh, Scott being the other guitarist in Gamicide, we, uh, we joined forces with uh, Bruce Corbett, the singer of Rigor Mortis, and we formed War Beast. And we formed uh, that band, and, and we did a debut album that was signed to uh, Phil Anselmo's House Court Records. We, uh, the album was called Crush the Enemy. Uh, that came out, gee, I think it was uh, 2008 or 10, something like that. 2010. And then, uh, yeah, 2010. I left uh, War Beast because actually they became uh, kind of successful and were having to do a lot more touring than I was able to do. Uh, I wasn't able to commit to the touring because of my job. So I left War Beast and, uh, you know, they continued on and made two more records. Just recently, in the past few years, I formed a new band called Iron Jaw. And that brings us up to where we're at right now. For your band Iron Jaw, give me a rundown on your current lineup. Okay, Iron Jaw is Todd Pack on vocals, Randy Cook on drums, Clay McCarty on bass, Jeff Brown on guitar, and myself, Rick Perry, on guitar. Now, what's it like when it comes to the practice sessions and dealing with the virus and everything like that? To be honest, Nick, the, uh, the virus hasn't really impacted our practices at all. Uh, we, we took a, about a a uh, few weeks off when it first hit, but after that, uh, we continued to to practice, uh, just making sure you know we're we're being safe and you know keeping our hands washed and all that. But uh, I, uh, I, we're we're not really too worried about it. Okay, now, what made you choose to record Chain of Command with Josh Woodward, and were there any past albums he worked on that influenced your decision? He has, he actually did the um, the Rabid Flesh Eaters record, um, and I at least part of the Rabid Flesh Eaters record. I don't know if he did the whole thing. He at least at least part of it he's done. And but the main thing was that Todd knew him, and he was wa- willing to work with us. He was willing to spend as much time as necessary, and just basically commit to the project. He was into it. To me, um, from my experience. Having a person that's into it 
and more and excited about the project is really more important than how much gear they got or how much uh, experience they have. Experience is important, of course, but to me, it's more important to have someone who is on the same wavelength as as the band is musically, that understands what we're trying to get across, that speaks the same language. Uh, as far as you know, if I say, okay, this is a a, a Black Sabbath type of part right here or something like that. If I'm trying to go for a certain vibe, then if he understands what we're talking about, then it's going to come across better. So uh, Josh was uh, someone that I was very glad that Todd thought of and and brought to our attention. And he did a a hell of a job on uh, Chain of Command. It it turned out great. Um, We... uh, we did it over a, it was over a period of several months actually that we recorded it at his home studio, but uh, we were able to do the recordings, take them home, listen to them, make changes, and uh, you know take our time and really get it right. And I think he did a, a fantastic job. Crypt of Rodan was my favorite track on the album. Tell me about recording it. Well, Crypt of Rodan was a. Um, a song that uh, that I wrote, um, and it was a. Um, let's see, it. I don't really recall the inspiration for it specifically. I think the the music probably came first, the riffs, and the uh, the title "Crypt of Rodan." Obviously, you may be familiar with the you know Godzilla uh, movie series. It's uh, Rodan is one of the monsters that fights Godzilla in the in the movies. But I didn't want it to be just like a, a song about Rodan, about the monster from the movies. I thought that was kind of corny. So I kind of reimagined Rodan as some sort of ancient uh, prehistoric god that is worshipped by this cult. And they summon him up uh, uh, you know, as part of the religion or as part of some kind of ceremony to, uh, to send doom upon mankind. And... Uh, yeah, I, I think it turned out pretty good. It's one of my favorites of the album as well. Um, what was it about that particular song that that you liked, Nick? Um, I don't know. I, I thought it was just like a much more wild track. Um, yeah. Yeah. I always just go for like the crazier tracks on the albums usually. Not, not necessarily yeah. like the single type stuff, but I just want like something heavy, you know? Right. Okay. Well, yeah, it's a it's a definitely a heavier, uh, more galloping type uh, feel, and uh, you know it kind of goes into a uh, it's got an interesting solo section I think where Jeff and I trade off back and forth a couple times. I'm heavily influenced by uh, Judas Priest and those classic metal bands like that where they had dueling lead guitar solos. So Jeff and I do some trade offs in there, and then we come together on a harmony. And it goes into a kind of a grinding Sabbath section in the middle, and um, yeah, I was I was happy with that one as well. Um, I think Crypt of Rodan uh, moves through several different metallic worlds and kind of takes you on a journey, and is probably one of the more ambitious tracks on the CD. I think um, definitely on our next one we'll have a couple more like that. Um, most of the other songs are pretty straightforward, which is cool too. And uh, I think maybe for a first CD, it was maybe good for us to have several, you know, straightforward tracks. And, but we will definitely branch out more on the next one. Now, 
Where did the inspiration for Step Into My Cage come from? Step Into the... Uh, Step Into the Cage was written by Jeff, the music. He came up with all the, the music for that one. And um, he was trying to go for a kind of a sneaky vibe on that, kind of a sinister type feel. And uh, Todd came up with the lyrics. Uh, Jeff had the title for it. And I think originally Jeff had written the title, envisioning it to be about uh, WFC or, or, or one of those fighting i don't i don't really watch them but ufc uh ufc um cage fighting or something like that that's what his original concept was todd what didn't really want to write about that subject matter but he still kept the title and he put his own personal spin onto it and i think it's more a um uh to hear todd it's more a story of a basically a stalker or a psychopathic type character when it came to the songwriting on Chain of Command, what track are you most proud of and why? You know, I, I like them all. I, I, I like No Speed Limit is a great song, I think. Uh, I think that song is a good direct, uh, you know, speedy number. I like that one a lot. Chain of Command, the, the title track is, is the music on that one is great, I think. We got a lot of good riffs in there, a lot of good changes. I like the way it has a, a breakdown in the middle. Crypt of Rodan probably is one of is definitely among them, and also uh, Devil's Reign, which was the song that we did with our was our first um, song released from the the CD. I thought that one. I'm pretty proud of the riffing and and the arrangement of that. I, I think all the songs are pretty well put together. Randy, Jeff, and I spend a lot of time going over the parts and the arrangements, and really making sure they all fit. We kind of try to make the songs kind of lean. Um, in other words, if it's if it's not needed, we take it out. Uh, we're not trying to throw in the kitchen sink. We would rather have it be direct and to the point. And sometimes uh, it's more powerful to hit you with a, a simple statement than a, a complex one. So that's that's kind of the philosophy that we're going with. And uh, I, I think overall the the, the whole CD turned out very well. I'm, I'm real proud of it. I think um, it'd probably be very different for, from some of the uh, music I'm known for in Gamicide, which was sometimes pretty complex and hectic, chaotic even. But um, nonetheless, I think it's uh, well-written and, and solid heavy metal. I was really, what I was really going for was trying to go back to my earliest influences like the stuff that first got me into music, which was, you know, going back to before, um, you know, some of the first bands I was into, which was like Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Black Sabbath, ACDC, uh, some of the originators of hard rock and metal, and, and just trying to write riffs that I'm not saying that we would ever equal any of those bands, of course, but just trying to capture that flavor of simple, direct, classic sounding riffs. Now, what is the most valuable lesson you learned from being in the 1980s North Texas metal scene? Well, I, I suppose just I, my, the most valuable lesson I learned mm, well, just to be just to be persistent to never give up, 
that every show uh, could be your last one, and that to uh, you know you got to put your best foot forward every single time you go on stage. Uh, you never know when you know when it could be your last gig. So I, I'd play every gig as though you know it could be the last one, and you know I hate to put on a bad show. So just being prepared uh, for anything that could go wrong, um, and just trying to stay totally focused on the gig at hand that day. What would you say are your three, are your top three concerts Iron Joe has put on? Uh, well, the last one we did was really good. It was at the a venue called the Gas Monkey here in Dallas. And it was a CD release party for our, uh, for Chain of Command for the, for Dallas. And that one was very went very well. Um, it was a Wednesday night. It was an outdoor venue, and uh, I didn't really expect it to be as well attended as it was, but it turned out really good. Other than that, we've had um, a few good ones. We, we've played this place at the wreck called the Rail in Fort Worth. We've had several shows there that went very well, and you know I, I don't I wouldn't say we we haven't played a ton of shows so far, Nick. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've only played probably maybe ten or fifteen shows uh, in our in our career so far. We play like maybe out uh, five or six times a year, but we're going to start doing some more. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping to have some more big concerts to tell you about soon. Hopefully, as as the situation opens up and we're able to start doing gigs again. Of course, we haven't been able to do gigs for a while, but. Just it's starting to open up back up here in Dallas anyway. Whereas people are are ready to go to see shows, and I think we're going to have some good ones. I'm I'm hoping 2021 is going to be a very good year for us. Now, what was your favorite time from recording uh, the Victims of Science album for Gamasite? Just the whole thing, the whole experience of doing it. We were that was my first time doing a full album in the recording studio. And we were doing it at a at a big studio in Dallas at the time called Sound Logic. Uh, just the whole the whole process of doing it and learning as as we went. I would say um, just really having it probably the most uh, memorable part of it or my favorite memory was actually when it first was it came out and it was had first been released and and to actually have an album or cassette with uh, my band's music on it and to be able to go to the local record stores and see it on sale in the, in the store was, was a very cool memory. What do you remember the most about working on war beasts crush the enemy? Yeah, that was another awesome experience because we went out to Phil and Selmo's house out there in new Orleans and he was very, uh, we've known him for a long time because obviously Pantera New Gamma side back in the eighties um, before they became big. And, and so it was cool to go out to Phil's house and, and hang out with him. And he's a, a big time horror film aficionado. And, you know, we watched all kinds of obscure horror films every night and we had a great time uh, out there at Phil's house. But Scott and I would get up every morning very early, like around five or six we would make our coffee and we would go to the recording studio before anyone else would. 
And basically, Phil stayed back at the uh, house and worked with Bruce on all the vocal parts. Um, he didn't really interfere with uh, Scott and I's guitar parts that much. Um, maybe just a little bit when we were doing some leads, he would come in and make some suggestions. But basically, he worked with Bruce on the vocal parts, which he did a great job on that. I think he um, that's one of Bruce's greatest vocal performances on that first Crush, uh, that first War Beast album. I mean, Scott and I would get up early, uh, we would go to the recording studio, and we would work all day long on it. I was very proud of that record, too, when it came out. I still am. I, th I think it's some of some of the best stuff I've been involved in, and I really like the songwriting on that first War Beast album. It's killer thrash, I think. What's your favorite urban legend or ghost story from the Dallas-Fort Worth area? There's a place in Arlington called Screaming Bridge where supposedly... Um, uh, this supposedly happened in the 70s where uh, two teenagers were uh, driving and they were partying and they went over this bridge and, and landed in a river and drowned. And uh, supposedly you could go to that bridge on certain nights and still hear the echoes of their screams in coming up from the bottom of this uh chasm where the the car had fallen and supposedly it was still at the bottom of the lake and uh that's kind of a legendary uh, thing from around here in fact when uh, one of my early bands warlock first started doing shows the place we played at was right next to screaming bridge which was down in the woods that that, that area is all built up now but at the time it was kind of a, a creepy you know, scary wooded type area with just a very small one lane road that went went into it and uh it was it was made for definitely an atmospheric setting for gigs what is your most cherished musical instrument definitely my jackson guitar that i've had since 1985 my girlfriend at the time bought it for me uh, it's been with me through all all my bands i had it uh, in warlock when I first got it, it was painted Tiger Stripe, and uh, it looks killer, but I thought it looked a little too bright for for Gamma Side. So in 1990, I had it painted completely black, and I've it's pretty beat up now, but I've still I still use it. It's still my main musical instrument. I have one other guitar that I play sometimes, but really I still play that Jackson all the time. It's Everyone around here knows me for it. It's really uh, the guitar I'm known for the most, and everyone associates it with me. But it's a uh, it's a R Randy Rhodes Jackson. I think it was. Uh, I, I checked one time. It was made in '84 or '85. The serial number on it is six five six, and it's um, it's pretty beat up now. It's had a lot of miles on it. It's like I said, it's took me all through um, Gamicide, uh, Puncture in the 90s, and, and then uh, War Beast in the early 2000s, and now I'm I'm playing in Iron Jaw. So without a doubt, that's my most cherished musical instrument for sure. Now, what would you say is the rarest album in your music collection relating to the DFW scene? The rarest album in my music collection relating to the DFW metal scene would probably be the first Hammerwitch EP, which uh, is the re Return to Salem. It was a five-song EP 
uh, put out by Hammerwitch, and I've seen that thing selling on on uh, eBay for up to three or four hundred dollars. So that, or maybe, or I I also have the war uh, the Watchtower album, Energetic Disassembly, the first album that they put out on their own label, Zomba Records. That's a pretty rare one. I've got uh, many demos by Texas bands like Militia, Annihilator, Rotting Corpse, Rigor Mortis, Yamicide, Solitude, Sedition, Talon, Morbid Scream. You know, those are all treasures of Texas metal that I that I'm you know really proud of. I'm proud to be part of the Texas metal scene, and uh, I keep uh, all those artifacts safe safe here at the house. Uh, I guess some final words. But they started having shows probably um, about a month or six weeks ago. And at first it was kind of cautious. You know, people were not really um, coming to the shows that much. But we, when we did our CD release show for uh, um, Chain of Command in Fort Worth about a month ago, it, it turned out really well and there was a, a good turnout. And I think people are really they're really ready to uh, see live music again. And I hope that um, the, uh, the, uh, the national concerts will start again too soon. I mean, so far, you know, we haven't seen anything, but I, I'm thinking that uh, in 2021, you'll start seeing the tours come through again. I hope, I hope so. I guess just right now, I mean, um, there's certain regional spots that are popping yeah. up, but um, I'll tell you, just um, it, it, it's pretty slow moving up uh, in the northeast at the moment. You said that you, you said that they're doing those drive-in concerts up there. Um, well, I mean, I know they have um, the drive-in movie I saw, theater. I, saw a thing, I think I saw um, a thing where someone was going to be doing that here. It's like going to be like a drive-in movie theater. People will be. I, I, I don't think we would do that. If we I were think I, I've I seen I, that, and it's just like I don't know. I don't want to like give a bad name to that. It's just it's just not my thing. I like I'm going to a concert. Come on, I, it's like you, you want to bounce around and have a beer or something, you know? Yeah, exactly. I don't know when it's going to be when they'll allow you know moshing or thrashing. I can't even imagine that they're going to ever allow something like a a Slayer or Lamb of God concert, you know, with a with a mosh pit, but Eventually, it will have to happen, but uh, we're still a ways off from that for sure. Uh, every every show that I have gone to so far, and I've gone to a couple of them, um, everyone is pretty mild mannered and you know and, and and cautious. No one's getting too crazy, but um, you know I, I think people are starting to loosen up and uh, and relax. You know, you have to live your life. You can't be you can't uh, shut the whole country down just to save uh, a, a tiny fraction of people who might be susceptible to this virus or who might succumb to it. You know, obviously you try to take all the necessary precautions. And if you're an older person or someone who has respiratory problems or something like that, then you need to stay home and, and stay away from everybody as much as possible. But I think that um, it's the rest of us need to to get on with it because we we can't just uh, just shut everything down. I mean, that's this is just part of part of the world, and you know there's there's risk in every aspect of life. There's risk in driving to the store. 
there's risk in, uh, you know, anytime you step outside your house. So, uh, you can't live your life risk free. There's no, there's no such thing as that. So might as well uh, enjoy your life and, and not miss out on a bunch of stuff just because you're afraid of getting sick. Thank you. This has been an interview with Rick Perry on Saturday, October 24th, 2020 by Nick Perkel.